Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here ends the New Testament reading. Teach us full obedience, holy reverence, and true humility. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do have a seat. Well, uh, in, a, in a week that has uh, seen uh, another terrible air disaster, uh, I want to begin this morning with uh, part of a report from uh, Time magazine. Uh, it tells of the tragic plane crash of Air Florida Flight 90 on January the 13th, 1982, in Washington, D.C. Shortly after takeoff, the plane sadly crashed into uh, uh, a bridge. It hit some cars and a truck, and then it plunged into the icy uh, Potomac River, killing 78 people altogether. And uh, TV crews were, were, qu- were quickly on the scene, uh, capturing images of that terrible event. This is what, the, this is what the, uh, the Time magazine report says. As disasters go, this one was terrible, but not unique. There was the unusual element of the bridge, of course, and the fact that the plane clipped it at a moment of high traffic, one routine thus intersecting with another and disrupting both. Then, too, there was the location of the event, Washington, the city of form and regulations, turned chaotic, deregulated, by a blast of real winter and a slap of metal on metal. And then there was the aesthetic clash as well, blue and green, Air Florida, sunk down among grey chunks in a black river. All that was worth noticing, to be sure. Still, there was nothing very special in any of it, except death, which, while always special, does not necessarily bring millions to tears or to attention. Why then the shock here? The person most responsible for the emotional impact of the disaster is the one known at first simply as the man in the water. Balding, probably in his 50s, an extravagant moustache, He was seen clinging with five other survivors to the tail section of the aeroplane. This man was described by the crew of a police helicopter as appearing alert and in control. Every time they lowered a lifeline and a flotation ring to him, he passed it on to another of the passengers. 
In a mass casualty, you'll find people like him, said the pilot. But I've never seen one with that commitment. And when the helicopter came back for him, the man had gone under. His selflessness was one reason that the story held national attention. Selflessness. We all know, don't we, what it means. But rarely do words capture meaning as clearly or as forcibly as action does. And that one man's ultimate act of of self-sacrifice as he struggled amongst that plane wreckage in the icy waters of the Potomac River was a clear and a forcible demonstration of selflessness. One final quote from that Time magazine report. At at some moment in the water, he must have realized that he would not live if he continued to hand over the rope and the ring to others. He had to know it, no matter how gradual the effect of the cold. In his judgment, he had no choice. And when the helicopter took off with what was to be the last survivor, he watched everything in the world move away from him, and he deliberately let it happen. Now, when I read this report, it didn't take long for my mind to think about another costly sacrifice. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth with the express purpose of dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. All of his 33 years were building to that one uh, history-shattering, history-defining moment when he watched everything in the world move away from him. His friends abandoned him. And he also deliberately let that happen. It was the ultimate act of sacrifice, giving his life so that others might live, not just for 20, 30, 40, 80 years, but that they might live, that we might live for eternity. And as Christians, when we talk about being like Jesus, when we talk about copying him, when we encourage our children with songs, I want to be like Jesus, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're singing about. A life of sacrificial service, a life of selflessness, demonstrated best through the attribute of humility. And this is what concerns Paul in this next bit of Philippians we're looking at this morning. He wants his readers, he wants the church in Philippi, this, the first European church, uh, he wants us to grasp what being like Jesus is all about. Because that is what will help us live a truly joyful life. So I've got three main headings for us this morning. They should be on the, on the sheet that you, uh, that you were given as you came in, on the, on the back of that. So let's just crack on with them. Firstly, what the church needs. We're back in this passage in Philippians. It's on page 980. We're going to look at the first couple of verses for this first point. What the church needs. And what does the church need? In a word, unity. Verse 1 of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And in a way, the chapter and verse divisions that we have these days in our Bibles, they can be a little bit unhelpful because verse 1 here is actually a continuation of the point that Paul makes in verse 27 of of chapter 1. And there he's talking about the fact that Christians should conduct their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
And there he uh, is talking, uh, if you like, the, the manner of, uh, worthy of the gospel from external pressures in, in, in chapter 1, those last three verses, from external attacks. And then he, he sort of contrasts that here in verse 1, that, uh, and he wants us to know that a life worthy of the gospel should be lived standing firm against internal attacks, from attacks within the family. And nothing kills a church faster than poisonous divisions from within. So Paul says, stand firm by being united. How are you doing here at St. Joseph's with unity? It's been a great few months, hasn't it? We see this new church, this renovated building, the excitement. There are new members uh, amongst you, a great mission stretching out in front of you to proclaim Jesus to the, to the west end of Newcastle, to, the, to beyond, to, to just the surrounding area. There has been much encouragement, there's been much uh, comfort, so much selfless participation here, much affection. And I mean, if, if this letter was, was being written today, Paul wouldn't be calling this uh, Philippians, he'd be calling it probably Benwellian. This would be the letter to the Benwellians. And this is exactly the, Paul's point in these opening verses. He's not questioning whether these qualities are in evidence, if there is any encouragement here. No, he's affirming the fact that there is. Indeed, most serious commentators suggest that a correct translation here would be to replace the word if with the word since, or if as indeed the case, which looks like this. I've, I've put them up so you can see them on the screen. Since there is encouragement here at St. Joseph's, be of the same mind. Since there is comfort from love in Benwell, maintain that same love. Since there is participation, since there is fellowship in the spirit at St. Joseph's, be of full accord. And since there is affection and compassion here in Benwell, be of one mind. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. St. Joseph's, Paul is saying in these verses, be united. And what is really quite striking uh, here is how this stirring appeal is rooted actually in experience. Paul is talking about those times when, you know, you just sort of sense that God is, is close to you in a special way. He's talking about those times when folk rally round together, when we rally around those who are sick or those who are in need or are in trouble. He's talking about those times when we pray and we read the word together through good times and through the bad ones. Paul is talking about those times when we've been made aware of God's love in, in, in sort of scarcely describable ways, and yet we know God's love is there. He's talking about times we've spent countless hours with brothers and sisters listening to each other's struggles, trying to comfort each other. Those times when food and money and possessions have been shared with those who have been more in need than we have at the time. And he's talking about those times of celebration too, Shared celebrations, be they birthdays, anniversaries, exams, finishing, whatever they might be. In short, whenever we have felt God's love, whenever we have experienced the joy and the benefits of being part of his family, in light of all of that experience, Paul says, don't mess it up by being divided. Don't. Don't let division kill this church. Be united. This church needs unity. Now, of course, uh, you're never going to agree on everything. Um, 
from the specifics of you know, how we bring up our children to which way we should vote on, uh, on, on the issue of Europe. Uh, Paul isn't saying that we all need to be clones and that we can never disagree, we can never do things differently. He's not saying that you have to dress like me, I have to dress like you, which is probably a reef for you. Um, he's, he's not saying that we all have to think and analyze things in the same way. It's unity, not uniformity. I love how one pastor describes this. He says that unity comes from within and it is a result of an inner attitude. Uniformity, on the other hand, that comes from without and is the forced product of external pressures. None of that here. If you see it, question it. Address it. But we do need to be of one mind. And as Paul says elsewhere, it's all to do with having the mind of Christ. This is the mind that he is describing here. Okay? It is a mind that walks together in love. It is a mind that considers others. It's a, a mind that looks to help each other in our faith. That is what is needed if there is to be any hope of your wonderful unity that you have here continuing into the future. So how do you accomplish it? Well, by taking on board the very practical advice that Paul gives next. Second point, how we accomplish it, verses 3 and 4, humility. See, the unity and harmony that Paul earnestly desires for his readers can only be achieved if they, if we, reject all forms of self-seeking if we reject all forms of vainglory, and instead if we humbly regard one another as more important than ourselves. It's one word, humility. And please don't let anyone ever convince you that the Bible is unpractical. Verses like these, three and four, verse three and four, they fly in the face of, of such nonsense, okay? Because Paul here gives us three very down-to-earth tips. First one, he says, never let selfishness or conceit be your motive. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In other words, pride, arrogance, smugness, that feeling of superiority that I'm always right, that desire that all my family must do what I want them to do and get in line when I want them to do it, none of that will get us to unity. Never let selfishness or conceit be your motive. Secondly, regard others as more important than yourselves. Look at that next part of verse 3. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. In other words, recognize your true standing. Be modest. Be unpretentious. You're a sinner saved by grace. That's all. Any success, any standing that you have by worldly standards has only come about because God has allowed it. And he loves each and every one of the people around you just as much as he loves you. And the best way that we can keep our egos in check is to always think of everyone else as more important than us. Third tip, don't limit your attention to your own personal um, uh, interests. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's pretty clear here, isn't he? Pretty straightforward stuff. He's saying, don't be so self-absorbed that you fail to pay the necessary attention to your brothers and sisters who are in need all around you. Instead, intentionally forget yourself and prioritize the needs of others above your own. One pastor tells a, a vivid example of the kind of unity that self-forgetfulness can bring about. It's an example from... Uh, Hitler's bombing of Britain during the Second World War. Here's what he writes. 
How often during the last war were we told of the extraordinary scenes in air raid shelters? How different people belonging to different classes there in the common need to shelter from the bombs and death forgot all the differences between them and they became one. This was because in the common interest they forgot the divisions and the distinctions and they suddenly became united. How much more so does the church need to be like that? St. Joseph's in the fight against sin, in the fight against the world and in the devil. You need to forget all superficial divisions. You need to forget the superficial distinctions and unite in humility to withstand spiritual attack. And before we move on, it may well be worth just a couple of words on what humility isn't. Because sometimes I think we can, we can be confused by that. You see, humility is not a, a false modesty. It's not an attitude that says, I'm just not worth, I'm no good, or I'm just not worth it. it, it it's rather a, a proper estimation of ourselves. Like I said earlier, sinners saved by grace, utterly dependent on God, utterly trusting him every step of the way. And humility is also not self-focused. Uh, sort of you know, humility does recognize what we're good at. And it does recognize what we're not so good at. But it makes neither too much nor too little of either of those things. On its own, okay, on its own merit, this passage, these, these couple of verses, read over and over with, with a, a prayerful intent by each one of us, they could lead to a, a quiet revolution in our lives, in our families, in the church, in our workplaces. And you'll notice that on the back of your sheets at the bottom, I've printed out these verses with a couple of gaps. And what I want you to do is I want you to fill in that gap with a name. Fill it in with the name of someone in your family, someone here at St. Joseph's, someone at work, wherever, and then say it, pray it over and over again. You have to do it now. You, you can if you want. You can take it away. But do do it. We've been experimenting with this in the Teasdale household over the last uh, last week before uh, before dinner over the over uh, the dinner table. And I've got Nathan. I got Nathan initially, our eldest, to uh, read out these verses and insert his two brothers' names into those uh, gaps. The other two have uh, reluctantly <laughs> had their turn on, on subsequent evenings as well. And it's been it's been quite interesting. It's been it's made for interesting tea times. But what about if the first thing that you did at work or the first thing you did when you woke up um, on Monday morning was to, to think of that person that you actually struggle with the most? Think of that person that actually you don't get on well, that well with, truth be told. And you inserted their name and you prayed that through. Powerful, life-changing stuff. This. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count as more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of certain ones. Friends, true humility is the cure for selfish ambition. It is the cure for vain conceit. It is the cure for complaining. It is the cure for arguing. But as game-changing as verses 1 to 4 can be, they don't stand alone. Paul didn't just leave it there. He is about to link them with the most sublime, the, the most stunning, uh, sort of captivating, majestic passages, if you like, in all of Scripture, as he points to Jesus' own story as the model for what he has just urged. So my third and final point is this. Jesus, the best example. 
and we'll deal with the rest of the verses in our passage under this heading. We heard verse, those verses in 5 through to 11, read earlier uh, by Tom. Let's just go through each, each of those, uh, those verses, verse by verse. Verse 5, have this mind. What mind? The mind of Christ. The mind, as we have seen, is a mind of unity through humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, the only reason that we stand half a chance of getting this mind is because of what Jesus has done. And so Paul launches into this wonderful summary of Christ's example, which stretches back into eternity, it reaches forward into eternity, and it stops off on planet Earth in between. Verse 6, who, though he, that's Jesus, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be be grasped. Paul wants us to picture how Jesus acted before he came to earth. Ever since forever, Jesus has existed in the form of God. He is the second member of the Godhead. And as such, he is co-existent, he is co-eternal, he is co-equal with God. And here's our example of selfless motivation. Jesus did not try and grasp or hold on to those benefits as Lord of all. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And here Paul wants us to picture how Jesus acted as he came to earth. See, in one sense, Jesus could well have stayed where he was, but in full control, he willingly let go of it all. He made himself nothing to serve us. Here is our example of regarding others as more important than ourselves. And as I said earlier, this isn't false humility. Jesus knows that he's God. He he knows that he is is far more glorious than we are, but he is willing to choose to, to come and to serve us. He willingly made us more important in a way that any need that he had to hang on to his glory, and he effectively abandoned those rights when he became a nobody. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Friends, this language is, is meant to shock. Today, the cross has become a dulled and domesticated symbol. From pop stars to archbishops, from tattoos to sunglasses, from church buildings to nightclubs. It just looks nice. It's not so. We can't let those images of the cross affect uh, how we read the Bible. As one author says, Paul is trying to get his readers here to see that the Son has exercised complete obedience to the Father in dying an odious, revolting death on the cross. A death that is reserved just for public enemies and the dregs of the criminal justice system. Paul has taken us from the heights of glory, equality with God, now to the depths of hell, separation from the Father. All to accomplish our rescue from sin. Here is our example. Here is our example of painful, of suffering, of costly attention to the interests of others. And yet, and yet in so doing, he has won the victory. 
And so Paul next wants us to picture what all this has achieved. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, once the debt of sin, once our debt of sin had been paid, God again lifted up Jesus to an unprecedented position of glory and honor and praise. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the language of in heaven and on earth and under the earth is meant to draw our attention to the fact that everyone who has ever been created, saved or unsaved, will one day acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it may well be that you are visiting with us here this morning, and as Jonathan said early on, uh, you are very welcome. But this is the question, if you are visiting and you don't know Jesus yourself, that is facing you today. Are you going to voluntarily humble yourself before the Lord Jesus? Or are you going to wait till you're forced to do so when Jesus comes again? Please don't wait. Please don't wait. Because if you do, Jesus could come, and then it will be too late. But if you act now and call on his name, saying sorry, asking for his help, he will answer you. And you will be saved for eternity. Now, I know many of us here already confess Jesus as our Lord, and that is great. And this morning, I want to leave you reflecting on verses 6 and 7 here. Say, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, Jesus voluntarily sets aside all those benefits of being God. He chooses to leave that, and he chooses to become a helpless, dependent baby. As I finish, I just want you to think about what that meant, just for a moment. The Lord of all the universe, dependent on the umbilical cord of his mother. We call him the word, but he's unable to utter even a word initially. He's known as the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, but he needs to learn how to have a beginning, how to walk, how to eat, how to tidy his room. The one who never slumbers, the one who never sleeps, needs to have a kip because he gets tired. This is absolutely staggering and it begs the question for you today. What are you currently grasping that is keeping you from serving others in humility? Is it a title? Is it a position? Is it a right? Is it a privilege? Is it, is it a preference? Is it an ego? Friend, will you set it aside? Will you let it go? Will you make yourself nothing for the sake of the church and the sake of the gospel? Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to be united through humility. Father, we ask that you would help us to think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. And Father, wherever we are, please would you help us and empower us to follow the wonderful example of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.